If you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. We'll be studying the final verses in Jeremiah 33, starting in verse 12 all the way to 26. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word before we hear it preached. Father, we come before you and we praise you, O God, that we heard that you delivered us from our sins. We're thankful for what we heard this morning. We're thankful, O God, that we are not like the Egyptians. Father, we pray that you would speak to us in a special way this evening. We pray that we would see your son. If someone doesn't know you, please change their hearts. If someone doesn't have assurance, Father, please give that to them. And Father, we pray as we feast on you in about 30 minutes that you would prepare our hearts for this great meal that we will receive. Thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah 33, verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of his cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priest, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant, and the Levitical priest who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose, thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight? Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. And thus sends the reading of the very words of God. 
As you know, my wife and I, during Christmas time, love watching Christmas movies. And one of my favorite Christmas movies, let's say it's favorites, one of my favorites, we watch it at least once a year, is Saving Christmas. It has Kirk Cameron in it. Please don't judge me for that. But uh, Kirk Cameron has a, I guess he's a brother-in-law who's a real curmudgeon. He just is on the Grinch. I don't want to celebrate Christmas. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. And Kirk Cameron looks at him and says, yeah, we know that. You know, the world is so, so worldly. All they care about is presents. And he's like, yeah, we know that. <laughs> and, and it just gives you a, a, a good outlook of Christmas that leaves you, you know, with your heart warmed and you're kind of happy. I like those types of movies. But Christmas time is special. And, and we come here and we, we have lessons and carols and one of my favorite services of the year. And we hear the prophecies. We read them. And then we sing the Christmas song that correlates to the prophecy. And as I'm reading through Jeremiah, I'm asking, why don't we read Jeremiah? <laughs> it seems as if Jeremiah is not mentioned at Christmas time like it ought to be. We see a prophecy here that deals what? With shepherds. We have a prophecy here that, that deals with the, the root of David and Jesus Christ. What we see here is Christmas story. We see a story pointing to the Son of David, Jesus Christ, coming to earth to do that which you cannot do and to save people from their sins. And this evening, as I thought, since this is about David, we notice that David was a prophet. That's according to Acts 2. We know that Peter called him the prophet David because he spoke about things he did not know. Therefore, he was a prophet. We also know that David was clearly a king. But we also know that David made some sacrifices. He ate some showbread. We've read... Psalm 110 about a priest under the order of Melchizedek. We know that that is, Psalm 110 is really about the Davidic covenant. And here we see something thrown in there about King David and, and Melchizedek. So I thought the way we should really outline this passage of Scripture is to look at Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and Jesus as king. Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and Jesus says, King. Now, if we have enough time, there's going to be a fourth point called eschatological hope. Just so you know, to prepare you beforehand, if you read about the sun and the moon, you say, Travis, didn't you just preach that? Yes. Uh, that's one of the reasons the Masoretes, when they were doing the Septuagint, had problems. They're like, Baruch is repeating himself. Well, yeah, we know that. We get to it, we get to it. I have a time limit because we have the supper today. But let's go on to the talk about the prophet. If you remember Jeremiah 23, and you could turn there because you have your Bibles open to Jeremiah. I'm pretty sure you do. And if you have a computer system that you're using, it goes much faster. That's why they don't have sword drills anymore because kids are just really good at it now. But if you look at the verse 1 and 23, there's almost an entire section written to the shepherds. Now, he wasn't pointing out the families in our church named shepherds, nor was he pointing out the actual shepherds who owned sheep. They were the men that were called to shepherd. Remember, shepherds were often used as an illustration to show you the people who cared for the flock, to keep them on the straight and narrow, to get them from point A to point B, kind of like your shepherds now. We try to keep them on the straight and narrow. We we try to get you to point A to point B. We want, you to we want to get you to glory. And he is condemning the shepherds. You see this sprinkled throughout Jeremiah. Wicked, evil shepherds. You listen to the voice of the wrong 
shepherd. When Jesus is prophet, what does he do? Well, the larger catechism teaches us that by his word and spirit, he tells us the whole counsel of God. He speaks his voice into our lives as prophet. This is what Jesus does. He's the great prophet. He uses his voice to speak to us. Judah did not want to hear that voice. They liked the voice of the false prophets. They liked the false shepherds who what? Tickled their ears and said, you're doing great. You've got nothing wrong with you. That's what they liked. And here comes Jeremiah saying, there's coming a time. The land will be filled with good shepherds again. Not the evil, wicked shepherds who spoke bad, who you listen to their bad teaching and their bad doctrine. Look at verse 12 here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of his cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, in the cities of Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. God is going to raise up Good shepherds that actually love the flock. Shepherds who are willing to share the hard things with the flock. Shepherds who are willing to go to their house in the evenings when they need help. Shepherds who are willing to wake up early and see how you're doing. Shepherds who are going to call them on the phone and say, Haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? God is going to raise up good shepherds because Ultimately, we are under shepherds of the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. He says, once again, there will be shepherds in this land who are not like the wicked shepherds. And you'll listen to their voice. You know, Jesus makes it very clear that he is the good shepherd. And in John 10, he says, my sheep hear me and they follow me. See, we won't follow the voice of other shepherds, the other shepherds who are speaking falsely. We won't listen to them. We'll, we'll listen to, to Jesus. And Jesus is such a good shepherd. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's often dark when they bring the sheep into this little pen. And you know, a good shepherd can count his sheep in the dark because he closes his eyes, and as he walks through the herd, he can count them just by touching them. He knows if one has wandered off. He loves his flock, and he doesn't lose one of them. This is what Jesus does to us. He is very good at counting his sheep, and he does not lose one, and he speaks. And my question is, whose voice do you hear? Are you listening to the world? Are you listening to false shepherds? Or can you hear the voice of the Lord? Do you listen to Him and Him only? Because this is Jesus, the prophet, the shepherd who speaks to us and we hear Him. Which brings us to the second part of our sermon as we look at Jesus as King. As you know, what does Jesus do as 
king. Well, he executes his office as king by subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us and restraining, defeating one day all of our enemies. It seems that as a prophet, as Jesus speaks, it seems a lot of people did not listen. He actually raised up this man named Amos, who was a shepherd. But you know, northern Israel didn't listen to him at all. In the days of Isaiah, Uzzah the king, I believe, was who was there, he didn't listen. Didn't listen to Amos, though Amos was a good man. And you see this throughout Scripture. God keeps sending his prophets and prophets and prophets. They don't listen. They don't listen. Even in the times of Jesus, Jesus says, you killed the prophets when I sent them to you. You didn't want to listen to them. It seems that people can reject that prophetic voice of even Jesus. But you know what they can't reject? The king. See, when, when the king speaks, you listen. Remember Lazarus was dead, and what did the king say? Come forth. Did Lazarus have a conversation with him at that time? No, Lazarus did what the king told him to do. When the king speaks, you listen. When he calls dead hearts, the dead hearts listen. And God is telling Judah, who's questioning if they're going to be extinct forever. What about the promises? He says, you will have a king. Look at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. He's telling them, wait. Remember, it's going to be some years. They're going to be 70 years in Babylon. And Zedekiah will eventually die in Babylon. His kids were killed right in front of him. But he ends up dying in Babylon. And they're really kind to him, to be honest with you. You see a little, little drop of God's kindness. But it seems they always had puppet kings. Not real kings. Puppet governors, puppet governments to govern them. And God says, you just wait. If you wait, the promise will be fulfilled. And you know, they knew this promise. You remember when Jesus was born and Jesus claimed to be king? At one moment, they're yelling Hosanna because they thought, now is the time where Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and put us back on the map. It's hard for them to see the kingdom of God. But God says, you just wait. It'll be fulfilled. In verse 15, in those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Oh, does this sound like Isaiah 11.1 about the righteous branch that will bear fruit from the stem of Jesse. Kids, this is the family tree. Kids, ask your parents, could you show us a family tree? Out of the family tree of Jesse is going to come what? This great king. So much, if you read Psalm 72, it says Song of Solomon, or it says a Psalm of Solomon. And I'm with Calvin on this, and I've read it. I think these are the last words of King David. He is dying, and Solomon takes that pen out, and he writes it. 
And you're saying, prove it. Well, I'm with Calvin, just remember that. Anyway, he writes that. <laughs> Question him when you get to heaven. Anyway, you're writing it, he's writing it. David thought Solomon's going to be the one. He's going to be the one that what? Executes justice and righteousness in the land. Well, you know how the story of Solomon ends up. He is so wicked that the kingdom splits in half. He loved the gods, the foreign women that he married. Solomon's clearly not that king. We're not the only ones that recognizes that. You know that, right? You know that Judah knew the story of King David and how righteous he was and knew that his son really messed things up. So they knew Solomon was not the one. And they're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And God says, oh, they're coming a day where the one that will come for me will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In verse 16, In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord will be our righteousness. This will be the name. It won't be your righteousness that's put on display. It will be His righteousness that will be put on display. You know, if you read my notes up here, which are absolute mess, don't ever, don't ever do a sermon this way. It's, I'd get an F in homiletics class. I was like, what is this? I had an example about a Super Bowl commercial. And it was just taken right from me this morning. So I'm not using that one. But I do want to talk about the righteousness of Christ. My wife and I went to a funeral, this celebration of life, this afternoon. And a friend of mine who, who died was a Shriner. I think he was three different types of Shriners and Masons. And I would say 95% of that funeral was how great of things that he accomplished. And how great of things that the Shriners accomplished, helping children, helping people. And it was almost, there was no glimmer of hope until a former pastor from Savannah got up and spoke. And I'm just praying, and, and Daniel's like, there's no hope. I was like, give the man a second. There'll be hope. And the last thing he told him, it was great, because he's preaching this sermon, and you know, it's really... A room of a thousand pagans. I'm sure there were sprinkled Christians throughout. God always has his remnant. And they were all patting each other's back of how great they are, how much money they've raised, how many great things they've accomplished. And I remember him preaching, and, and every preacher knows exactly what he does. He just goes, okay, I'm just going to tell him how it is. He shuts his Bible, and he says, we've heard a lot about your works. He goes, your works don't mean anything when you get to heaven. The only work that matters is what Jesus did. And if you don't trust in him, you won't make it. And I said, glory! Be! I just wanted to yell and scream. I'm like, praise the Lord he got up there. Because I know, probably a little afraid, right? Probably, oh no, there's a lot of people here and, and they're not going to like what I'm about to tell them because they've been talking about their false god of the Masons over and over again and calling people the high priest and the potentate of time. And I'm like, oh my. Your righteousness means nothing. The only righteousness that matters is the righteousness of Christ. 
He is the one that is your substitute. And you know, when you think about King Jesus, we are subjects of the King. We serve Him. When I hear that, I often think, ooh, how do I serve Jesus? How can He be my righteousness when I'm not righteous? And, and how can I actually serve Him? John Piper, when he speaks about the King, makes this great observation. And I think we all understand this. There are so many people that say, well, I'll serve King Jesus when what? I get my life cleaned up a little bit. You know, if I clean up my life a little bit, or maybe I go to learn a little more theology, maybe I'll come to Sunday school a little more, maybe I'll read a little more, and then I can prepare myself to actually serve Jesus or to, or to share my faith with others. But for now, I'll just stay back. And he says, if you wait, you'll never share Jesus. If you wait till you have your life cleaned up, you'll never share Jesus. He talks about a man who came to the Lord who was complete, complete disaster, complete sinner. And he says he's sitting at the lunchroom and people are going, they're just mocking Jesus. And he stood up and he said, I can't take it anymore. Jesus is my king. And they're like, you mean you're a Christian? And he thought, yeah, he takes hypocrites and I'm one of them. If you wait to serve King Jesus until you got all your sin taken care of, you'll never serve King Jesus. God wants you to serve Him now. He is King now. Right now, He is ruling and reigning and sitting in the right hand of God. And He is restraining and conquering all of our enemies. Because we are forgiven, we can fear Him now. And we don't have to fear anyone else. We've seen how Jesus is prophet. We've seen how he is king. Now we get to see how he is priest. And you know King David was not a Levite. You know Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and he's also not a Levite. So when you, when you start talking about Jesus being king, you have to think about how can a king, and I know where you're going, you're like, well, Travis is from Melchizedek. Do you not understand how crazy that is? We say things often in Christianity, especially in the Reformed Church. We've said it so much and patted each other on the back so much. It's just not mind-blowing anymore. Jesus isn't a Levite. But yet, he's a priest. And his priest is even of a greater order than the Levites because his priesthood wasn't in the loins of Abraham. Do you remember what Abraham did to Melchizedek? You remember that, right? He, he tithed to him. He gave him worship. The king of Salem, king of peace, Jerusalem. He's the king. And he tithes to him. Abraham knows the pecking order. He understands it clearly. He is the great king. I'm just over here trying to run my little country. He understands the greater king. He understands the pecking order. And Jesus comes and says, yeah, I'm from Melchizedek. But you see that in Psalm 110. Do you not see it in Psalm 110? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, written about King David. 
where he also says you'll always have a son sitting on the throne. So it seems that the priesthood and the kingship are mentioned side by side multiple times in Scripture. And here we have another instance where it's speaking about Jesus having the office of a priest. And you know what the priest does? He represents you to God. He makes the sacrifices on your behalf because God is so holy and you are not. You need a priest to make that sacrifice for you. And this is what it says in verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, comma, comma's not there in Hebrew, but I like it, comma, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. This would have been mind-blowing to Judah. You mean there's always going to be a priest that's going to make sacrifices for me, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices? Their mind went to what? You mean there's always going to be a temple? See, they couldn't get past the here and now. They couldn't get past what they see. And here comes Jesus. Think about this. For thousands of years, they have been making sacrifices, sacrifices, sacrifices. Jesus shuts it down by one act of obedience. Shuts down the sacrificial system. Hebrews 10 is really important because you've heard this before, but day after day after day, what did the priest do? Constantly make sacrifices, sacrifices, sacrifices. Why? Because of sin and sin and sin. When you saw the sacrifice and you saw the blood, that was sin everywhere. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away your sin guilt couldn't take away the actual sin, what you deserve from your actual sins. But when Jesus, when he was crushed for our sins, he was a priest that offered a one-time sacrifice for sins, and then he sits down at the right hand of the Father. One time. Imagine that. Just completely upended the entire sacrificial system by his one Death, his one sacrifice for all. The moment you realize what the priests do, the priests were, I've said this before, they were righteousness checkers. Clean, unclean, clean, unclean. You can worship today, but you can't. Go out. And here comes Jesus. Instead of just telling us that you're clean or unclean, he actually makes us clean. He's a different type of high priest. His pecking order is a little higher than the high priest that was in the loins of Abraham. He doesn't just declare us, though he does. He actually makes us righteous because he is our righteousness. And what does he do? He is in the right hand of the Father offering burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices forever. He has his unfinished work. We've heard of the finished work of Christ and we get that. His unfinished work is he sits on the right hand of God and he makes intercession for us. Not just daily, always, forever. He takes 
his actual body and blood and he takes them to the actual mercy seat, the mercy seat where God planted his feet. He takes them to the feet of the Father and the blood is sprinkled on the actual mercy seat in glory and he lives to make intercession for us. It says it once in Hebrews and it says it once in Romans chapter 8. He is making intercession for us. And this is why when you pray, you ever pray prayers and you have no clue what you really want to pray? Like, I don't know what to pray. Praise the Lord for that intercessor who does what? Intercedes on your behalf. Who prays when you don't know how to pray. Which brings us to my eschatological hope. I got five minutes to cover this. And I'm going to do it in five minutes. Verses 19 through 22 was the same sermon that I preached on chapter 31. You can go back and listen to it. But it's speaking about how do I know that God's going to love me forever? Do I have any assurance that God's going to keep his promises? Do I have any assurance that Jesus is going to love me forever? God says, watch the sunrise. Go outside and count the stars. Look at the moon. God says, I would break my covenant with the sun, the, the moon, and the stars before I break my covenant with the people that I love. You want assurance? Signs. You have general revelatory signs. You have general revelatory signs by which God is speaking to you and you can see God's work. And God says, I will never break my covenant with you. And then you get to verses 23 through 26 and he speaks about King David and, and the descendants of King David and Abraham. Those who are going to be grafted in, though he doesn't use that language, he talks about the multitude of people coming together under the one king. And the reason I want to bring this up is so many people read these verses and they say, David, that was fulfilled in who? Jesus, that's clear. They look at the priest and they go, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Yeah. The eschatological hope, well, that's not happened yet. We still need a temple. What? You mean one is fulfilled, two is fulfilled, but three is not? We must be consistent. And if we're consistent, we'll say what? The kingship was fulfilled in Jesus. The priesthood was fulfilled in Jesus. And the coming together of the tribes of Judah and Israel, what? Fulfilled in Jesus too. We can't separate our eschatology from this passage. No, Jesus fulfills all three. There are people that read this and say, well, wait a minute, he made promises to Judah and Israel, and he promised to have shepherds in the land, and he promised to always have a priest, therefore we have to have a temple. I submit to you today that if you believe we need a temple that is blasphemous, and I actually wrote that word down because I wanted to make sure I wasn't just erratic in picking a word. I meant blasphemous. I meant blasphemy. When you speak of sacrifices taking place after Jesus' once for all sacrifice, that is blasphemous. And I'll stand here on record saying that. May we teach people that the sacrifice has come. There's one way and one hope, and that's through Jesus. And I pray as you read, 
Jeremiah. You won't just pick and choose. Well, that happened in Jesus and that happened in Jesus, but that didn't happen in Jesus. Oh, no. It was all fulfilled in Jesus. All of it was fulfilled in Jesus. Which brings us to the conclusion. As I close, I have three different choices here to choose from. But I want to speak about the shepherds. I find it very interesting that he came to the shepherds in the first place. You know, you hear the stories how, how their testimony wasn't even supposedly, and I think it's true, wasn't even allowed in court. But he came to them. Now, Sinclair has something that I'll leave for that for later, why he thinks he came to them in Bethlehem. I just find it very comforting that he came to the shepherds. Because oftentimes, I don't know if I'm good enough to share the gospel either, but the Lord lets me. And it gives me confidence and hope. As if he comes to shepherds, he can use me. Makes me excited. So I pray and hope that you see Jeremiah chapter 33. See Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And he uses people. He can even use shepherds. He can sure use us. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word.